Howdy, and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Leanne with our special guest today, Emily. Yay, Emily. I'm special, all right. <laughs> it's already starting. So before <laughs> we get started, uh, what, tell us what's been going on since we last spoke. It's been a while. Yeah, it really has been. Um, well, I'm working a ton. Um, let's see. Yeah. I got a new dog and she chewed through my headphones, which why, which is why this one might sound a little funny until I can replace them. But uh, otherwise that's, she is that's absolutely maybe. perfect. Right? That's maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Her name is maybe because she maybe. Now she named, I was going to say, so she named maybe because you have another dog named later? I mean, that's part of it, and because I'm sick and twisted, but also because she's a shelter special, and she may be Chihuahua, and she may be Dachshund, and she may be Corgi, and she may be... We don't know. She's all freaking adorable, I'll tell you that. Yeah. She's all ears and tail. Yeah, she's really cute. Really cute. So what are you training right now? Uh, mostly just herding with later, um, trying to get ourselves ready for hopefully a trial in January fingers crossed yeah. and this will um, be your first trial yes yes thanks for pointing Ooh. that out that, that that helps the nerves tremendously oh, no, it's called exciting that. you should be excited mm -hmm. i have the <laughs> utmost confidence in my dog to do well, exactly go. what i tell her to do that's you know that's is, actually a good thing. If you screw up, which who is cares? what I'm terrified of. <laughs> <laughs> because that's no big deal. It's when it's when the dog is like on the razor's edge and might eat the stock that things get a little sketchy. It's when you call the wrong direction six times in a row and realize you're a dumbass who can't tell right from left. That's embarrassing, but everybody does that. Well, that's yeah, that's probably what's going to go down. Oh yeah. Although we had our first moment at herding the other day that was brilliant because I was getting ready to put stock in the pen and I told her away and that would have put them on the wrong side of the the gate. And <laughs> so they have to go through a fence. <laughs> yeah, and she started in that direction, but she was making like laser beam eye contact with me the whole time, like, Are you sure, dumbass? Are you really <laughs> sure about this? And I was like, yeah, nope, nope, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Go the other way. And she was like, ah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Herding is one of those sports where you spend a lot of time saying, I'm sorry to your dog. That and Frisbee. That's what I oh. found. Yeah. It was funny though, because it was the first time that we've had a situation where she looked at me like, I know what's going on better than you, don't I? I'm like, oh God, you now realize that. <laughs> You're in trouble. <laughs> You're like, oops, my bad. Carry on the direction that would make sense and not have you going through a fence. Well, yeah, you do you, boo. I'm just going to be out here <laughs> waving the stick around. Hoping for the best so I can figure out my right and left soon. <laughs> yeah. God. And then there's that moment when you're out there and you have to make a split second decision. And that's the moment that your brain goes, wait, is come by clockwise or counterclockwise? I know. <laughs> Just wait until you just wait until you start driving your dog away, and then everything that you've been practicing is bass backwards. I'm notoriously bad at fucking that up. I mean, I'm bad, 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 bad. It just oh, it's bad. I don't know about you, but I'm the vet tech that has to like turn around and get behind the dog so I can tell is it their left front or their right front. <laughs> and when they're upside down on the surgery table, I have to like turn over and be like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, Do no, that was the right side. Absolutely, I've done that. You face the same yeah. direction as the dog, put your head the same direction, and you kind of pretend that you're mm -hmm. upside down. And you're like, okay, this is my yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if more doctors did that, we wouldn't have the mess ups we do, right? <laughs> True story. True story. Which leads just How delightfully convenient. into our topic for today. <laughs> How convenient I think it answers the question straight out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> So today we are going to talk about licensure in dog training. So right now as background, your four-year-old child who's owned one dog can put a business card together that says they're a dog trainer or a behaviorist. How's that for fun? They can pretty much put anything on their business card they want and 
That's all legal. And there is no, there are no binding laws in the United States, or I think most of Western Europe, about whether or not using the word dog behavior, dog trainer, dog, you know, Zen master, whatever, none of those <laughs> are protected words. And so anybody can use them and claim the distinction of being a quote unquote dog trainer, uh, dog whisperer, dog behaviorist, dog behavior specialist, any of any of that stuff. And yeah. so what we're going to talk about today is whether or not there, there have been noises multiple times in the industry about whether or not creating an, a licensure system for dog trainers is a good thing. Then you get into fights over tools and then the whole thing kind of blows up. And, and so Emily brought it up today and it'll be interesting to see, because again, this is another one of those subjects where I actually have no idea where Emily stands on this. So, um, oh, you're brave. I know where I stand <laughs> and like everything, I take a nuanced approach. You know, I think there's pros and cons. Um, so anyway, where, where do you find yourself on this? on this subject somewhere squarely in the middle, which I realize is really helpful. Um, no, he, here's the thing. Theoretically, absolutely. Absolutely. They should be. Um, on the flip side to that is I have met some people who are phenomenal animal trainers who have nothing but really good timing and a basic understanding of learning theory um, and wouldn't necessarily have the resources to go further than that. They wouldn't have the resources, you know, to go through the Karen Pryor Academy or become members in some of these um, behavior groups or, or things of that nature. Um, and honestly, I've talked to a lot of professionals um, I've talked to a lot of people that have gone through the Karen Pryor Academy and gotten their, uh, license, not licensing, gotten their certifications, um, and say it doesn't do them any good. doesn't get them anything. They stopped paying their membership dues. Like they just really didn't see the point. Um, because frankly, the general public doesn't understand what any of that means. Uh, so until we can come up with a, a an overall system that we can then sell to the public as, hey, this person is licensed or, you know, has this training that everybody knows to be good. I don't know that it'll do us any good. And I don't know that we will ever get to that point because to get to that point, we are going to, as an industry, have to decide if the use of aversives is acceptable in a licensed profession and what level of aversives is acceptable in a licensed profession. And yeah, I, th that I think history yeah. has proven will <laughs> never be decided. <laughs> well, I think to be fair, so I look at this from, cause both of us are, and I think this is a great example. Both of us are in the medical profession and I'm a certified veterinary technician and you're a non-certified veterinary technician. So Correct. we are theoretically, you're, I'm licensed and you're not. Yes. Yep. Does our knowledge differ? I'm going to go on a limb and say pretty unlikely, not significantly. We've both been in industry fairly long time, especially by industry standards. We're pretty smart people. Uh, we've both been at pretty high levels within hospitals and both of us have been in busy hospitals. So knowing all of that background, I'm going to say that you and I are probably fairly equal when it comes to surgical prep and, um, mm -hmm. you know, making sure the pills in the bottle are correct and making sure that we can um, place an IV catheter. Now, you know, maybe you can place a central line and I know I can't. Um, some people can do urinary catheterization. Some aren't as comfortable. So uh have we in the last i want to say arizona changed the laws for veterinary technicians maybe 10 8 10 years ago where you could no longer come in through kind of the ground up you could no longer right. become a certified veterinary technician 
by just working in the industry, studying like hell and taking the test. Now you have to go right. through an accredited school and become a, a licensed technician or certified vet, veterinary technician through, through an education system and then take the test and become a vet tech. Now, which, I'm further Which outside. I would like to say on a, on a completely, which is sort of related to this, is complete bullshit. Because, and here's why. If you go through school, through tech school, and you do your two years or your four years or whatever, and you fail that test at the end of the year, you cannot become a licensed vet tech. That test is the be-all and end-all of whether or not you are qualified to become a vet tech. So why does it matter how you gain that knowledge? If that test is the only thing that stands between you being licensed and not licensed, and I can pass it with life experience and somebody else can pass it with school experience, what difference does it make? Well, and the argument from the veterinary profession, veterinary field, when the big push happened, and the push came from the technicians, the vets, I don't honestly think give a shit, or may actually be kind of opposed, but quietly so, is that it would professionalize, yeah. that's an air quotes, the, the being a vet tech, and that it would raise, it would raise the quality of veterinary technicianing, if that's a thing, as well as raise <laughs> wages, which of course... <laughs> I'm going to go on a limb and say, now wages are going up all over right now because the world's changed. But I'm going to say overall, wages are probably pretty shit still. We still have a massive shortage in the veterinary field for qualified staff. And I suspect strongly this certainly has not helped. It also creates a barrier to entry. And this is where I really come in with the dog training. It, become, it, it becomes a huge barrier to entry if you start as, asking, especially for schooling first. And I mean, so yeah. if, you, if you're saying well, you need to go to XYZ school and pay uh, XYZ people who are experts, well, first we have to define who the experts are, right? Who are the experts? So right. are, are the experts the only people, only the people who maybe graduate KPA, Karen Pryor Academy, because they're clicker based or can Michael Ellis be an expert, but he uses tools. So first right. you've got the dog fight over that. Then once we've decided who the quote unquote experts are, they are then going to go train these folks. That's a huge expensive barrier to entry. And I'll be honest. Now I didn't really see a lot of techs coming through the tech schools. So I can't speak to the actual higher, higher education part of it. But when I saw uh -huh. them going through the vet assistant schools, they came out absolute crap. They they yeah. knew nothing but thought they knew a lot. It was actually more dangerous than people we pulled in off the street because they knew they didn't know anything. Correct. And they were more willing to learn because they didn't think they just spent $60,000 on a useless education. So I guess the first place to start would be if we decide to accredit who makes those decisions, who is the board, what are the rules? Yeah. And, and right there, you're going to have a fist fight in this industry because there are folks out there who think that if you put any device on your dog, except for a flat buckle collar, or God only knows, God only knows what kind of harnesses, some sorts of voodoo harnesses, you are Satan. Yep. And those folks certainly cannot be the the folks who are telling other folks who what dog training is. And I think the other big difference between veterinary medicine and dog training, and this is huge, you medicine is a pretty straightforward thing. If you have an infection and you give antibiotics, you're gonna you're gonna see statistically a huge difference between a person who has an infection and gets antibiotics and a person who has an infection and has burning leaves um, burnt in their bedroom or, you know, whatever voodoo bullshit well, happens. I mean, Christian, Christian scientists have done that work for us. Right. Exactly. My, actually, yeah. this is terrifying. My family comes from Christian scientists. Oh yeah. I went to a family reunion, looked like circus freaks, broken legs that were never set, teeth that were never fixed. Yikes. I'm like, uh, 
God also gave us doctors, guys. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> but independent thought. Yeah, but anyway, we there is no science now. They're gonna there are people who are gonna say, "Oh, I'm a scientific dog trainer," but here's the fact: we the science in dog training is that Skinner has always worked. That that we were able to train dogs fifteen thousand years ago. And no one knew who any of these names were. They didn't know the quadrants. They didn't understand learning theory. Uh, horses have been trained for 5,000 years. We know how to train animals. We've always known how to train animals. And so to say that we are, to say that some practitioners of dog training are using scientific quote unquote methods and some are not, if they're getting results, they're in the quadrants. You just may not like the tools they're using, the quadrants right. that they're in. Yeah. yeah. And so the difference is, is that the point, the reason the AVMA and the AMA came into existence was to keep people from, I read this great book. It was about a guy, a guy who made millions, millions at the turn of the century and into the, into the 19, I want to say forties or fifties, taking testicles from goats and placing them inside of people to oh. increase virality in men. And then he also felt that it did all such other, you know, once it started doing that, it could do anything. He killed a couple people, sure. But, sure. you know, the rest, placebo effect, you know, they're like, oh, it works. And the AVMA, or the AMA, the beginning of the American Medical Association was like, um, you shouldn't be allowed to <laughs> put goat testicles that, so that sounds wrong <laughs> into, into people and kill them and that shouldn't be allowed and so they the point was to remove charlatans the problem in dog training is that yes there are charlatans but they're not as obvious and a lot of them really aren't so much charlatans as just bad trainers and that has right. nothing to do yes. with quadrants because here's the thing. I mean, and this is why places like Sit Means Sit and Bark Busters and everything else do so well, right? Because what is Joe Schmo pet owner's um, metric for if a dog trainer is good or not? I hire a dog trainer because my dog barks and lunges and acts a fool when we're out on a walk at other dogs. I hired a dog trainer. Six weeks later, my dog doesn't do that anymore. They're a good dog trainer exactly. as far as that person is concerned. Now, if for some reason that dog then turns and bites the three-year-old a year from now because it's sick and tired of being shocked every time it looks sideways at something... Average dog owner isn't going to put those two together. They're just going to assume that their dog is, you know, messed up in the head. So, I mean, there's that, there's that line of what is effective dog training or what is good dog training? Cause I guess that there's, there's both, right? There's effective dog training. That's not good. And there's good dog training that might not be effective, depending on what the behavior is exactly. that you're trying to correct. Exactly. You've got both. Now, to be fair, before we get sued by Barkbusters and Simeon Sip, I believe the new guy in Tucson with Barkbusters, he's supposed to be R+. Oh, interesting. I, think I don't know. I, I should preface that by saying my only experience with Barkbusters is East Coast Yeah, there's shock new, collars. There's just a new guy in town, and my understanding is it's no longer focused on e on e-collar um, training. That's my understanding. I, I'm not guaranteeing it, but I just don't want anybody coming after us and yelling and saying, rah, 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 rah. so yeah, um, but, but sit means sit is, is completely a aversive based e-collar based um, methodology. And I've spoken to here's the, the guy who invented it and his argument is, and I can't disagree with him. His argument is, People want it done today. They want the yes. problem gone. Yes. No, and that's the thing. By the time they get to an organization like that, first of all, they have a marketing team and advertising that the average dog trainer person does not. So they've got that going for them. But also, by the time somebody gets to them, by the time somebody gets to any dog trainer, usually, especially for a behavior problem, they needed to stop and they needed to stop last week. So 
a lot of people don't have the time or patience for counter conditioning and desensitization and um, uh, LAT and BAT and all this other stuff. They they don't have the time for it. They need the behavior to stop last week. And those places deliver that, like the behavior stops. Um, So is that bad? Have they, have they uh, improved that human animal bond with that dog and its people? Yeah, I'd say in most cases they probably do. I mean, there's a reason people keep coming back. There's a reason they have a huge, a huge following and a bunch of people who come back to them. And I local, I know the local sit me and sit trainer, and I actually really like her quite a lot. And um, you know, it's effective. It's, it's really effective. And we in the R plus type community like to talk about fallout all the time, but honestly, I, you know, if, if every single one of these dogs who was being trained with an e-collar turned into Cujo, I think we would have heard about it by now. Uh, the fact of the matter is for most, the vast majority of dogs, it's effective. It gets the job done and they get to carry on with their lives, which is interesting because it brings me to the next point. So when we talked about doing this, even though I'm, I was driving at the time, I did have two seconds to Google. I knew that somebody had put out a position paper on this yeah. and it was the association of pet dog trainers, APDT. Uh-huh. The AVMA has as well. Oh, okay. And the APDT had their position paper is kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? Uh, really? And if you are sure, here are the criteria that should be met. And one of the criteria was Lima. Now, yeah. And I think we could dive a little bit into Lima because I think that Lima is a very wiggly stool to stand on if you're going to use that as your ethical standpoint for dog training. So first, Lima means least invasive, minimally aversive. Of course, the question becomes who's going to define least invasive, minimally aversive, right? I mean, that's the very first place you have to start. And let me give you an example that comes from the veterinary world, which again, is something that we, you and I both know really well. The rule in veterinary medicine is do no harm, right? That's the, that's the number one rule. And that's part of the veterinary oath. So I knew a veterinarian that Oh my God, she made me insane. I start, I, I started managing her hospital. And as I started going through and looking at everything, my very first thought was, oh my God, they sell spays and neuters and all surgeries a la carte, where owners, the least educated of the whole, the whole population, got to choose whether or not the dog got an IV catheter, whether or not the dog received, or pet received pre-op blood work, and whether or not the pet received pain medication going home. That happens still in a lot of the lower cost clinics. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't, this wasn't a hundred years ago. So no, I was mortified and I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. We do not sell surgery a la carte. Absolutely. freaking not. I said, we are sending home pain medication. What, what the hell? Who, who opens up an animal and then doesn't send home pain? Med- That's just, I was just appalled. And right. her, her argument was, she had been on pain medication once and hated how it made her feel. So based on that, she felt that it was okay to deny pain medication to dogs and cats because she was on pain medication once and it made her feel like shit. Uh. And so in her mind, even though the part of the oath is do no harm. And my thought would be if you're sending home an animal who you just cut open with a blade and then sorted through their internal organs, looking for bits and pieces to cut out, they probably deserve some pain medication that to, and to deny them would be doing harm. She didn't feel the same way. So when we talk about least invasive, minimally aversive, the first thing you have to kind of look at is, well, who's doing the defining? If you look right. at, and, and I'll get, we won't use, we won't keep using a corporate name since we'll probably get sued. Um, but let's assume that we're talking about the kind of a trainer who kind of goes in and, and slaps a aversive on the dog, gets the dog turned around in a couple of weeks. Now they might say, well, you know what? I follow Lima, least invasive, minimally aversive, because if I had taken the R plus route, if I had taken the route of 
positive reinforcement and counter conditioning, it would have taken years. And now the dog right. can go out in public and be a dog. Yeah. And, and honestly, That's can, very true. can I argue with that? I can't. And, and I probably wouldn't, to be honest. I look at some of these, these folks who are, uh, who are placing stuff out in the public sphere with their R plus dogs who are complete neurotic psychopaths. And, and I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I wouldn't. So, so here's an example, and I'm not going to name names. This is a, actually a really well-known R plus trainer. And I watched a video of this person taking their dog on a walk. And the dog is, and I can't speak to how badly reactive this dog was to hear, to hear the story. It sounds like the dog was a complete whack job and would just bark and react to every single person, place, thing, uh, you know, that it saw in its environment. And so this, this is after years of training, I want to say three or four years of training. And the woman was using a method kind of called look at that and kind of name and explain. You know, where you say, look, it's a cyclist. Look, it's a bicyclist. I think that's what they were using. So anyway, she has to be hypervigilant in the environment. She has to, she's constantly looking out for the dog. She's constantly pointing this stuff out to the dog. Uh, the dog actually did lunge at somebody while she was taking the video. And I'm like, three years in, I'm really struggling with allowing a dog to continue down this mental state. I'm really struggling. Absolutely to see yeah. this and good for her that she's I'm as a pet owner, no way in hell would I want to live with that level of, I mean, talk about aversive for the human. We, there are two ends to the leash. Yeah. So for example, when later hit later is my four-year-old Australian shepherd, she's intact. When she hit about a year, 18 months, we used to hike a lot. We would, we would go out once, twice a week to hike. And when she hit about a year, 18 months, she decided all of a sudden that when she saw, if she saw a group of people on the trail, um, it was okay. But if we came around a corner and there was a single person or maybe two people, she would lose her shit. Full on scream, scream barking, just idiotic attack, right? It was her little teenage brain. And when it first happened, probably the first six months or so we would pull off the trail far enough that she would stop reacting i would reward quiet calm behavior whole nine yards and it got a minimally better but it was always still there so um i spoke to another trainer friend of mine who has aussies and i'm like i don't know what's going on i don't like the way this is headed this you know I do not want a leash reactive dog. And she's like, well, what have you tried? And I told her and she was like, cool. Now she needs to learn to knock it the fuck off. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and so the next time it happened on the trail, um, I was not cruel by any means, but what the method I used was that I shortened up the leash and I got in her space 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 and I got in her space. And she couldn't do anything to get away from me except sit and look up. And the second she did, we rewarded and went on about our business. And essentially what it was is I was so freaking irritating anytime she barked at somebody that it just wasn't worth it. She was like, meh, not worth it. It's, mom's going to turn into an idiot if I bark at them. So I might as well just be quiet, get the food and move on. Move on. Yeah. Because you weren't dealing with severe, you weren't really dealing with fear. You were just dealing with probably kind of teenage onset stupids. So you were able to make that choice in that place. And that's a reasonable choice. Right. And I started positive. Right. I started with, Hey, no, we're not going to, you know, let's look at me. This is good stuff. We got good things. Look, every time these people show up, you get fed, blah, 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 blah. And so she had that basis of, you know, mom is the source of good things, but then she also needed the, Oh, and that behavior is unacceptable. You know, they, they do sometimes need both sides of the coin. And did I go straight to a shock collar? No. Did I go to a prong? No. Might I have if it if my method hadn't worked? Possibly, because that's not a behavior I'm okay with. I don't know that I ever would have gone to shot collar just because I don't have the skills and the training to use those properly. But um, I might have 
amped up the the consequences for that behavior. Um, but here's the thing: we did that. I don't know, maybe six or seven times at varying levels. And now if she starts in on it for whatever reason, all I have to do is step in front of her and she's like, got it. Right. Sorry. Not supposed to do that. And that's the end of it. Right. So was it awful? Like, was it positive? No. Was it awful? I don't know. I can take my dog out on the trail now and not have to worry about her being an idiot. Right. And which so, means she gets more freedom and more interaction. Right. So in your, cause when we train dogs and this is the thing that I think we have to understand when it comes to things like Lima is I'm going to say the vast majority of, of trainers, regardless of the tools they use, I don't care if they're e-collar trainers or they're prong collar trainers or they're R plus trainers. My assumption, because I tend to believe the people are good people is that they are using the method that they feel is the one that's going to be the most effective and the least invasive to the dog because they're trying to get the problem solved. And so for some folks, the number one thing about getting the problem solved is you get it solved today. So that dog doesn't end up in the pound because while you're, you know, while the R R plus people are screwing around with counter conditioning and bat and lat and all the initials, these folks have just lit up the dog and the people have moved on with their lives and as far as we, you know, and for what we know is the folks who are doing counter conditioning, run out of patience and rehome the dog at, you know, six months. So, right. and I'm not saying that R plus is wrong, dear God, no, because no. that's where I no. tend to focus my energies. But I am saying that if you're going to tell somebody, if you're going to make rules, we have to be very careful how we make those rules. So if we're going to make rules, I think the absolute most important thing is that how we train dogs has to be off the table. It cannot be on the table. It has to be, you need to understand the quadrants. You need to understand the basic science. You need to be able to take a test, but I'll be honest. I took, is it APDT's test? Uh I took their, their hundred, their hundred, um, like you can get a freebie or not a freebie. It costs like a hundred dollars, but you can take a, a demo test online. Uh, to get an idea, because I was thinking of doing that. Right. I got, without even studying, I got something like an 86. Yep. Enough to be certified. Oh, God, yes. So, yeah. So the first thing is, is I think that if you're going to do that, you cannot make the test so stupid that everybody passes. The second thing is, is that the tests are going to be designed by all the dog trainers, which means that, and I don't have a problem with this. That means R plus folks need to learn how to use a shock collar too. Yeah. That means R plus folks, because if you're going to use Lima and you, and this is an argument that was said to me by another dog trainer, and I kind of agree with her is the problem with Lima is once you get down, once you've gone through least invasive, minimally aversive, and you travel down that road and you do need to escalate, you don't know how to use the tools appropriately to make sure they escalate correctly. And safely and fairly. Correct. And, and that's true. If I get, if I get a dog in my, in my training program and suddenly that dog needs a tool that's outside my purview, I'm kind of stuck because I don't know how to use them. I don't know how to use an e-collar. I mean, I know who I'd go to for that, but I, I can't do it myself. I have the basic understanding of a prong collar, but I've never personally used one. I've used, now I did grow up in the time of choke chains. So I know how to use a choke chain and I come yeah. from horses, which is pressure, pressure release. And I train stock dogs, which is pressure release. So I understand pressure release, but most dog trainers don't who are R plus, right. they've never touched those tools. They have no idea. And they're so scared of them. And they're so freaked out by them that even if they did use them, even if they felt they had to use them, they wouldn't use them appropriately. They'd be cowards about it, or they would, just screw it up or they wouldn't do it or they would just go the route of just drugging the shit out of the dog until it was became a moot point. Well, and the other thing too, that we have that a lot of other licensed professionals don't is a lot of variety, right? Like if I'm a plumber and there's a stopped up sink that I get called out to, 
the odds are there's like one of three different configurations under that sink that I'm going to have to deal with. Okay. Yeah. I can train Aussies. I can train border collies. I'm doing okay with whatever maybe is. (laughs) Um, Like there's, there's a lot of breeds that I'm like, yeah, I, I can teach you to train your dog. That's no problem. You put a, you put a, um, like a Northern breed in front of me or a, uh, like one of some of the older breeds, like, like a spitz um, or something spits or God, what is the word? My brain just went <laughs> primitive. You want that word? Huh? Primitive. primitive? Yes. Yeah. You, you put a primitive breed in front of me. I'm going to be like, yeah, yeah. Good luck. Um, and I know that, like, I know that about myself. I know that my skills are <laughs> vary depending on breed. Um, and that's a problem, right? Because you can't, you can't train a primitive breed the same way that you would train a border collie. Oh, it's not going to work. They're going to, they're going to laugh at you and walk away. Um, I remember, I distinctly remember, um, training with my beagle. I was working with a trainer who was, was, uh, I, I, what we would call a balance trainer. Now she used, she used a choke chain, but also used food um and my my summer child goal was to get my dog to come when he was off leash this beagle and so we worked and we worked and we worked and we worked and we had him on a hundred foot long line light long line and she's like okay i want you to start walking across this field and i want you to just reach down and unclip him and keep walking and then when you get about 50 feet away i want you to call him so we did And I reached down and I unhooked him and I got about 50 feet away and I turned and I called him and I swear to God, that dog looked at me, traced the line from me back to him with his eyes and realized that there was nothing attached to him, put his nose to the ground and wandered off. (laughs) And I went, well, so much for that. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, we'll just we'll just keep him on leash. It's cool. So, you know, that's something to consider, too, because when you're making these rules and regulations and guidelines and whatever else, what works for one breed very well may not work for another breed. Like to basic learning theory is basic learning theory. Yes. But when you have to deal with owner's ability, owner's time, owner's skill, owner's needs, um owner's resources like it's not always feasible sometimes you might have to break out some bigger guns you can't just say oh well you can only use clicker training yeah no i i I absolutely agree and i i think and again i'm not saying you know i don't think emily or i are saying that you can't train any breed using r plus methodology right absolutely it's is it fair to ask the owner <laughs> right. to travel well, that always, road? <laughs> right. And I've always said, you know, you get those 70 year old people that have decided that they want to have their childhood dream of a lab puppy <laughs> who then grows up to be 80 pounds of like Enthusiasm. psychotic. <laughs> yeah. And the only way the dog gets out of the house is on a prong collar. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's fine. Like, is it my ideal? Absolutely not. Is it better for that dog and those owners? Yeah. Because a prong collar does a lot less damage than a broken hip. So, you know, sometimes that, that be the way it is. Um, and so, you know, honestly, my suggestion for the best way to regulate dog training in the way I think most trainers might want to see it go is to regulate dog breeding. I was going to say the only thing I would regulate would be dog breeders. Yep. If, if we required a inspection, licensure, training, insurance, blah, 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 blah for dog breeders. And if there were punitive results for not having that and creating a litter of dogs we would have a lot better population of sane stable 
dogs to work with. I agree hundred percent. I think that, I think licensing breeders, not just numbers and cleanliness like they do now, like no. the agricultural people do. You have to prove, you have to prove that you test your dogs, that your dogs are temperamentally stable and that you have the skills and the knowledge to raise a litter of puppies to be as stable as possible, whether you're using Avidog, whether you're using puppy culture, whether you're using a mix of that, some sort of proof that you are not just raising those puppies in a box stall in the barn. Right. That you're doing everything within your power and that you understand the reasoning that you, that you're not just following the rules. You're, you're doing the reason you're being reasonable and that you're educating puppy owners when they pick up the puppies to, to make sure Continue that they on. understand, because this is the thing. And this is where my argument, we're kind of going off on a left tangent, but whatever, that's how we roll. When people, so I was talking many years ago, I had a, there was a person interviewing me. Uh, they were looking, they were head hunting and they were looking for a manager for, they were going to come into Tucson and they were a, I think a, like a funded, not-for-profit spay neuter because they wanted to rescue dogs right and i kind of it probably wasn't going to be my jam so it was no big deal that it was it was never going to probably happen because they asked me kind of what what i think the number one thing to do would be to ensure that there aren't animals being euthanized at the humane society and animal control and I did not say anything about spay neuter because I don't think that that does a lot of good. I think right. where the problem really lies is ensuring that the dogs who do go out the door go out to responsible owners. The dogs at the yeah. pound are almost, and you know this, are almost never puppies. Very yeah. rarely are people dumping off an entire litter. It happens. But the vast majority of dogs are a year old. Those dogs had yeah, they. I would say between eight months and 18 months yeah. is the, when they hit that stage where they start, you know, randomly barking at strangers on the trail. Cause trust me, we <laughs> had that talk. Yeah. You know, or, you know, the cute behaviors of puppyhood are now the annoying behaviors of adolescence. And right. so it's not about not having enough homes for dogs. That is, I don't think that's the problem. I don't think excessive breeding is the problem. I think failure to adequately appropriate, uh, adequately, educate the folks picking up these dogs is the problem and yeah. it's we don't have a lack of homes for puppies we have a lack of homes for uh, adolescents and that's because people have a misunderstanding of what that entails now maybe you know maybe those people shouldn't have gotten a puppy in the first place ever and so you know maybe we should breed less dogs but the fact of the matter is i'm going to say that good breeders litters aren't ending up in the humane society. Yeah. And the thing too, is if we, if we approached it from that end, right? Like so far I have been involved in creating three litters. I know where every single one of those dogs are. I know what they're doing. I know who they're with. I know how they're progressing. Um, and if there was an issue, I would absolutely want one of those dogs to come back to me. Right. So right. if we, if we say to breeders, okay, you have to be licensed, you have to be trained, you have to be insured. Um, and you have to microchip your dogs before they leave your house. And the second contact on that microchip information has to be you so that if a dog turns up in the shelter and the owner's like, yeah, no, I don't want it. The next person they call is that breeder who is then legally responsible to come and get that dog. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or at least find it a home. Cause I mean, I understand that they don't necessarily, they can't fly across the country. If right. They, I mean, know, they're, they're they New become York responsible. And California. But it is their job to try to find it a home. It is their right. job to, you know, if worse comes worse, pay the rent, the board on that dog. And right. uh, I, I think that microchipping everything is pretty much the place to start. It's like just putting a license plate on your car. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. I want to know where my puppy if I, you know, cause I'm thinking about breeding tag at some point and my biggest concern is losing one of those puppies. So yeah. I just, and I, and I fully intended to send them out the door with a microchip and my name was going to be on that microchip. And right. it was really interesting. So I didn't know this. I used 
the wisdom uh, panel for uh-huh. for the genetic diseases for tag. So I sent off, you know, her DNA or her, you know, her spit and got it back. And it, you know, she was clear for everything. And then like a month or two after that, they announced, oh, meet your dog's, you know, DNA relatives, meet your relatives. Well, I know her relative. Right. He's a purebred dog. So I wasn't too keenly interested because <laughs> it wasn't like I was going to find out her relatives were somebody other than I thought they were. But I opened the email and it showed that one of her litter mates had been registered too. And I didn't pay any attention to it because, you know, I knew who bred her and I knew where she came from. Well, turns out that litter mate had been picked up on the streets as a stray in Phoenix back in 2020 or 2019, went through Arizona Border Collie Rescue, was then adopt- has all sorts of behavior issues, obsessive compulsive behaviors, shocking Border Collie, mm-hmm. and had finally landed in a home and had this whole story attached to this dog. And now Tag's breeders, her lines are good. Her breeder is subpar. Yeah. You know, her breeder had very two very good dogs, but they themselves had very little knowledge of what they were doing. They just put a litter on the ground, probably for their kids, and or probably get their money back on the money they invested on the on the bitch and the dog, and didn't do anything to vet the folks who got these puppies. Which is why I know that if a pup I don't know how big the litter was, obviously two of those dogs ended up being rehomed because tag was rehomed to me at 10 weeks when her owner realized that maybe a full-time job and a really busy after school schedule for his kid weren't conducive to keeping a puppy in a crate. Right. So I got tag at 10 weeks when she completely, and she was already what they call a dirty puppy. Which meant she had no problem going to the potty in the crate because she just quit holding it. Yeah. And that was a nightmare to deal with. Oh my God, it was awful. But anyway, and then to find out that her sister had the same, had a situation similar where she ended up on the streets, which meant that pretty much somebody dumped her. Uh, I mean, I, I doubt she got loose and ended up in Arizona Bard Collie Rescue and never found her home. I mean, I find that very difficult to believe that she just accidentally got loose. I mean, that probably just means that somebody dumped her or walked away or so. Right. That and that's the dear, it's kind of interesting because that's just what happens when you have a careless breeder, well bred right. so dog, I, careless breeder. I think that you know, I think if we're talking regulation, I honestly feel like that's a better place to start. I'm not saying we won't end up at regulation for dog trainers, uh, but let's start at the source, right? Because if we're if we're only putting out thoughtfully bred supposedly stable dogs whatever that means for their their breed um then the number of dogs that need anything other than basic manners training should go way down theoretically yeah absolutely well i just look at all these border collies and aussies that are in the the homes the pet homes that are my that are my students yeah these are dogs that are now experiencing all sorts of issues that are, that are not, I am not inexpensive, <laughs> that are not easy, not cheap, and are, are very traumatizing for the owners. And yeah. it's not because these are terrible dogs. It's not even because these are necessarily poorly bred dogs. It's because they were poorly homed dogs. Yeah. And if we said to, if we said to breeders, you're responsible, you're not responsible for eight weeks. You're responsible for 15 years. Yeah. Then I think that changes a little bit of how you send a dog out the door. I mean, if I send, when, when I breed tag, my intention is to obviously have a line of people out the door who already want puppies and then to have already vetted them to ensure that they understand that, that she's a border collie, that she is a high drive dog, that she's a stock dog, you know, all these things that they can be sensitive, blah, blah, blah. They need parameters. They need rules as, as puppies. You don't just throw them in the backyard and hope for the best that 
if I send a dog out, my idea is I really need to make sure that that owner is that dog's last owner. Yeah. You know, I mean, I understand or things happen. If, you know, yeah, keep I was gonna it say, if something and, happens yeah. that, they, that they are clear in their understanding that that dog needs to come back to the breeder, no judgment. And right. that's the hard part, right? Right. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, but... I have two kids. My husband has gotten a job where he's never home and we've started after school sports and I literally have not one more second to spare in my day for a dog. That's a valid reason. I don't care if you don't agree with it. People have lives. They move on. Things change a lot in 15 years and we need to stop shaming people for admitting they're in over their head because it doesn't do the dog any good because what happens is they're too embarrassed to say, I need to get this dog back to the breeder. So they dump it in the shelter or they hand it off to a friend or worse, you know, like first of all, give them, give them a stable dog with a good support system and let them know that that dog can always come back to the breeder Yeah, and see what happens. Yeah, because rehoming to friends isn't always. So the way I got Cody, Cody's a, actually, so once I discovered that you can, that wisdom will tell me who my dog's relatives are, I immediately ordered one for Cody. Because unlike Tag, who's breeding, I know, I don't, Cody is Arizona Border Collie Rescue, and I got her at about a year, and I don't know her family, but oh my God, I'd love to, because she is such a nice dog. But every time I look at her, I think, oh, if I'd had this dog for those first nine months, the right. difference I could have made in this dog's life. Yes. And, and you yes. know, I don't like to tell people, look, your dog's doomed if you don't get him right from a puppy, because it's not true. But the behaviors that Cody came with are not bred in behaviors. The behaviors she came with are life, are life behaviors. You know, she started yeah. her life off, whoever bought her as a wee puppy, brought her into a home with another dog that kept attacking her and it was an older dog and it was inappropriate because puppies should never be attacked and it was a repeated situation that ended up with her being stitched together as a puppy by another dog so that's incredibly obviously traumatizing so this person rightfully chose to rehome her but the person who took her took her as kind of a favor not because she thought what i need in my life is a high drive working line bred border collie she had an older australian shepherd at home she thought they could be friends so she throws this border collie kind of out in the backyard with her aussie you know this is part of the family she has a little girl and cody is such a high drive dog that she becomes a shadow chaser and she starts obsessing with light and shadow and it makes her more and more crazy and I think there's other household issues going on and she kind of goes over the top and she bites a kid. Mm-hmm. So now this nine month old puppy has got a bite history on her and is on her third home and is being rehomed again to Arizona Border Collie Rescue. And this dog, you know, there I don't believe in letting dogs hang out with little kids. I'm always super cautious of that. I mean, I think there are dogs that might be safe, quote unquote, with little kids. I just... They're a predator and it just always wigs me out a little bit. I know Billy the kid, my livestock guardian dog, would be fine with a little child. She would just smash it joyfully, but she'd never bite it. Um, right. Squish, possibly. Mango bite, no. But the other dog that would absolutely never hurt a child is Cody. Cody loves kids. She's, yeah. she, but, you know, we are super cautious when the neighbor's little girl comes over to visit. We go down, like if we're down at the, at the livestock and Cody's hyper vigilant and paying attention to the geese or the sheep. Uh, she's their daughter has been told never to touch her under the circumstances. Just because what yeah. I think happens is, you know, if she steps between her and I don't think she'd bite, but if she's going to, it'd be there. Right. But yeah, here's absolutely. A, but here's a dog who is bred, who is who is so incredible, such an amazing little dog, and all of that was wasted in those first nine months, and now she's dog reactive. And she's a shadow chaser and, you know, and we can't unring that bell. Right. So, I mean, I guess the, the thing I would say is that when it comes, when it comes to this problem of regulations and guidelines and, and 
any sort of standard um, in the field. I think we're a long way from seeing anything that's reasonable because of that, because there's so many variables, there's so many methodologies, there's so many approaches, and some of them work, right? Whether we agree with them or not, they work. And it becomes a slippery slope of is just because they work good enough or should we have some sort of, you know, contingency for fallout or like who's who's to say right what's the ultimate goal is the ultimate goal keeping the dog with the family and making sure they have an enriched life okay if you say that what's an enriched life because what's enriching for one dog breed is not for another and then we have to try to define that and that becomes an issue you know so i think it's easier to start at the source and regulate that because there's already kind of policies and procedures in place with similar um, professions that we could kind of base our guidelines on for that. Um, and I think it would make a big difference down the road for dog trainers as the kind of dogs they're seeing. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And well, and I think the other thing we have to be cautious of again, when it comes to legislating something like dog training is I think eventually it would just be a money-making scheme for the state. I mean, I, I kind of almost look at vet techs like that because yeah, what is the difference between you and I as a vet tech and a non-vet <laughs> non tech, right? I mean, you've been working in it longer and I mean- they have? No way! Wait, ha you have. How long have you been working in the industry? I was supposed to be making a dig at your age, not mine. <laughs> oh, I'm older than you. But I think you've been, I don't know. I've been doing longer. it. I've been doing it for for twenty, almost twenty seven years. Yeah, seven years longer than me. Yeah. So, and actually, I left the industry a little bit ago. So, probably, I think I was only in the industry maybe fifteen years. So, yeah, way longer than me. But we don't know. You know, and the other thing is, it's not like. It's not like it makes a damn bit of difference. It's not like I go into the room and the clients know, oh, she's a CBT. That makes her magical. Right. I don't wear a little crown or a sash. The vets don't give a shit. Uh, the No one cares. Or a better right. thing is like that. So I, we, I belong to an AHA hospital. And that's American Hospital, what, Animal Hospital Amer Association of America. Is that right? AHA. Does that sound right? American Animal Hospital Association. Okay whatever. So yeah. we were AHA, we were AHA accredited and that is expensive and a nightmare. And do I, did I ever really think that clients knew the damn difference? Nope. No, I think that, it, I think that it runs thousands of dollars to get that accreditation and it doesn't, I, the hospital knows they're stepping up to a higher standard, but right. the people don't. And I see right. licensed veterinarians all the time who I wouldn't allow within, with a 10-foot pole near my dog. Right, exactly. And I mean, that's that's what we run into with the whole dog training thing too, right? Is that, all right, so you have a certificate from, or a membership with APDT. Did you know that you can have a membership with APDT and not be certified? You just pay your 50 bucks. There you go. It's not like the public knows the difference. I don't know. There's just, there's so much, so, so many variables and so many what ifs in that area that I just don't see, I don't see it coming together anytime soon. Um, and well, I don't, yeah. and it's hard because I've, I, I have come across in my time, as have you, some really shitty dog trainers, right? Yes. Some just like complete crap. Uh, small dick energy for lack of a better word dog trainers <laughs> well and, and i think there's a lot of ineffectiveness on the r plus side too right oh sure I absolutely think, i mean I, oh I, absolutely one thousand percent ineffective a dog trainer who spends two years solving a problem that could have been solved in six weeks by another trainer i i really struggle with and i'm not talking yeah. And I'm not talking about changing a dog's ultimate mental outlook. So I do a lot of, of fear 
anxiety dogs. So these are what I refer to as globally anxious dogs. These are dogs who are just not doing well in the world at large. I look right. at that more as psychiatry than dog training. And we yeah. all know that psychiatry is a lifelong process. So I don't, my goal is not to have that dog quote unquote fixed in any period of time. But my God, if I'm not seeing huge monster changes in that dog within a couple of weeks, I'm stressing out. I'm, yeah, I'm doing backflips trying else. to find out what, how to, how to get in this dog's head, but you should not have a dog reactive dog who is still lunging and screaming at every stranger that goes by three and four years down the line. You should not have to look like your head is on a freaking swivel to walk your dog. That right. is, I don't think that's acceptable. I, I don't, I, you know, a very good friend of mine, I love her. She's a hell of a dog trainer. She lives with a dog who would literally fucking bite her. Yeah. Like, hard. That's Maggie. I mean, I don't, I don't, it, it's Maggie. Maggie's, I love Maggie. I think Maggie's one of the best dog trainers I've ever met. And she lives with a dog who would bite her. There is no yep. way I would live with a dog like that, nor would I ever ask my clients to live with a dog right. like that. And, and here's the thing, it breaks, it. one of the things that breaks my heart the most, and I've seen it way more than I would like to, is owners that are afraid of their own dog. And they're not wrong. Most times they're not wrong. Now, whether that's because they don't know how to handle the dog or the dog wasn't raised right or whatever, doesn't matter. The person standing in front of you is terrified of their own dog. Yeah. And I, do I don't think that's that? fair. Yeah. That's not fair. Right. How do you fix that? And how do you fix that fast? And is it fixable? Like that's hard. I don't know. There's, that yeah. is hard. I'm working with a client. I'm working just... with their clients like that right now. One, right. One of whom is both of whom are justified and I get it. Uh, I mean, I do. I, because the first thing that kind of has to happen is their body language has to change in handling the dog because right. and, by and being tent by being tentative and kind of squishy they kind of invite the dog to if the dog's not feeling it to kind of they invite the dog into a position of saying well you know i know how to solve this problem i know how to solve right. it in the past i've used teeth and look the body language of this person tells me that they're already worried and so it's not going to take much. And now I'm, yep. I'm heading down that road. So I, I think, yeah, that's, that's a whole different conversation for a whole different day. So totally. we are a little over an hour. We probably should wrap it up. Any last thoughts? Um, yeah, my last, I, I think to, to summarize, to sum up, um, <laughs> very fancy. I don't think dog training will be regulated in any sort of effectual manner anytime soon uh nor should it be currently without without some bigger bigger picture in mind um but i do think we should start looking at regulating the dogs that are put out in the world and how that's how that's done yeah i i agree i think that that's probably a. I I think that regulating dog training would just be a uh, exercise and futility, a, a way to ensure that you might remove good dog trainers from the system by excluding their style of training. I mean, I just can't imagine a world where we can't listen to certain trainers because of the way they train. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, I doesn't matter to me. Um, you know, I, I don't care how, you know, whether or not they at any point in their life history have put an e-collar on the dog to to decide that you cannot listen to that person or that person has no value because they've done this one thing is, is really the height of stupidity. And so I just hate the idea that we would prune the bush and lose some of the best dog trainers we have in the United States because of a mythology about tools that I think is probably erroneous. So I, I would see that, to license or certify dog training in any meaningful way would be an exercise in futility and stupidity. And to do it in a non-meaningful way would just be a, a way to gain money and make some people feel good. And I think both are, overall, I think both would be detrimental to both the profession and to the dogs at the, at the end of the leash who we're trying to serve. 
Yeah. And, and, and their owners. Yeah. Now I probably should do a little disclaimer. I am not certified as a dog trainer in any way, shape or form. (laughs) Oh yeah. Me either. Yeah. Uh, I am a certified I mean, I am certifiable. There's that. wrong. No, you could be anytime. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Like Those I said, I, took, I could take the test for APDT, but then I thought, well, it's kind of like, uh, who is it? Mark Twain. He said, you know, if a, a club will have me, I don't, I don't want to be in that club. Yeah. Uh, you know, same sort of thing. If it's that easy to pass the APTTS test, then why would I bother taking it? Yeah. If it's, yep. You know, why, why would I waste my time and give them money? I mean, again, why? And again, the, the average dog owner doesn't know what any of those letters mean anyway. It would just be to give myself more gravitas with other dog trainers. And then, and that's just silly. That's just silly. I love dog trainers who introduce themselves with like 550 initials after their name. I'm like, really, really get over yourself. What initials do your dogs have after their names? You show me that and then we can talk. (laughs) Yes. 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 Because most of those people with all those initials have dogs they can't leave in a crate alone on the other side of the room. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for for the chat, Emily. Hey guys, if you want, if you like this podcast, we do have a Facebook page now, Your Dog's Best Life on Facebook. Join us. Uh, we will post a picture of Emily's new puppy on it. And, uh, it's cute. <laughs> she is it cute. is cute. Minus, minus the headphone chewing. Instead. Yeah. She's other than horrible. that. Well, dice ate ATVs. So yeah. Stand in line. Could be worse. Yeah. Could be worse. <laughs> if you like us, like share, subscribe, some other word, share, subscribe. I can never follow. Maybe that's it. I can never do the last follow. one. Damn it. Uh, Have a good one and happy new year because I think this comes out two weeks after the new year. See y'all later. Happy training. Bye.